This is Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and Jay Craig Williams, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, both of them, one from California, one from Massachusetts. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Coast to Coast on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi in Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams in sunny and, again, warm, Bob, Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. Bob? And I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. And it's actually uh, fair to middling weather here in Boston today. Uh, but uh, maybe that's all because of global warming. And that's exactly what we're going to talk a little bit about today. Uh, we're going to talk about the uh, case that was uh, heard last week by the Supreme Court Uh it questioned the uh, effect of uh, greenhouse gases and other emissions on the environment and how those might be affecting the, the coastlines and, and what the role of the EPA should be in, in regulating that. Well, Bob, a group of 12 states, including New York and Massachusetts, sued the Environmental Protection Agency for failing to properly do its job, according to the allegations. These states, backed by environmental groups and scientists, say that the Clean Air Act requires the U.S. EPA to impose limits on carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases emitted by new cars. These gases are a major contributor to the greenhouse effect that is dangerously heating up the planet, according to the suit. Well, some are saying this is one of the most uh, significant environmental cases ever to reach the Supreme Court, and the court uh, heard arguments from uh, James R. Milkey, an environmental lawyer from Massachusetts, and Gregory G. Gear, a deputy solicitor general representing the Bush administration. And today we're going to be talking about the role of the government, the U.S. EPA, and the Supreme Court in this case. And to kick us off on that, we'd like to welcome David Doniger. David is the policy director of the Natural Resources Defense Council's Climate Center, focusing on policies to cut global warming and pollution. David rejoined the NRDC in 2001 after serving eight years in the Clinton administration, where he was director of climate change policy at the uh, U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and before that, counsel to the head of the EPA's Clean Air Program. Welcome to the show, David. Well, I'm glad to be here. And our next guest is Douglas T. Kendall. Doug is the founder and executive director of the Community Rights Council, uh, a nonprofit public interest law firm based in Washington, D.C., was formed in 1997 to assist communities in protecting their health and welfare. As executive director, Doug has represented local government clients in state and federal appellate courts around the country and before the U.S. Supreme Court. He's also the co-author of CRC's Takings Litigation Handbook, Defending Takings Challenges to Land Use Regulations. Welcome to the show, Doug. Thanks for having me. And also joining us today is Ann Kelly. Ann is a prominent member of Massachusetts' legal and environmental community, has joined series in January 2006 as the Director of Governance Programs. Ann oversees the development of series program for corporate directors as well as series GRI-related work and other senior-level projects. For the past several years, Ann has been a principal at Creative Resolutions, a consulting firm specializing in mediation of environmental and land-use disputes, and has lectured extensively on environmental law. Welcome, Ann. Thank you. Well, David, let's kick it off with you. Why don't you tell us about your role in global warming with the Natural Resources Defense Council and perhaps a little bit about some of your experience with the Clinton administration and EPA? Well, I've been working uh, here and there uh, on trying to get consensus towards policies to put a cap on the emissions of the global 
in overheating the planet. We have very little time left now. We've lost a lot of time. We have very little time to get on a pathway for this country and for the world to cut the emissions and bring in new technologies uh, in order to prevent dangerous levels of, of uh, global warming and, and very dangerous impacts. So uh, I've worked a bit on this, quite a bit on this case. Way back in the um, Clinton administration, I uh, had a role in, uh, in enunciating a, an opinion by the general counsel that the Clean Air Act does cover carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases as air pollutants. And if they are found to be dangerous to the climate, they're just as subject to Clean Air Act regulation as any conventional pollutant. Uh, the Bush administration reversed that position, and that's what the lawsuit is about. Uh, and um, it's, um, it's been heard before the Supreme Court now. Doug, how does the CRC plug into this case? Well, our, our role, as you mentioned above, is to um, represent state and local governments uh, in environmental challenges, usually involving constitutional uh, or other important principles. And uh, we, in this case, have represented a very broad coalition of, of local government associations and officials. We represent the uh, U.S. Conference of Mayors, the National Association of Counties, the American Planning Association, the International Municipal Lawyers Association, and the cities of Seattle, San Francisco, um, Burlington, Vermont, and Albuquerque, New Mexico. And local officials are, are the first-line responders to the havoc that global warming is causing there responding to heat waves, they're uh, dealing with, with increased floodings and increased hurricanes. And so they have intense interest in this case and have weighed in um, pretty unanimously in favor of federal action here. They are, they are actually, state and local officials are, are leading this nation in the absence of federal leadership in responding to global warming. And, but they know they can't do it alone. They know action at the state and local level isn't going to be ultimately enough to, to counter global warming, and they, they want the federal government to take its role and its responsibility uh, in leading the nation to a, to a solution here. And, Ann, I wonder if we could just turn to you and have you tell us a little bit about Ceres and your role there. Sure. Uh, Ceres is the nation's largest coalition of investors and public interest groups. We have the Investor Network on Climate Risk, which manages $3.7 trillion, and we have a coalition of over 80 uh, public uh, interest groups, environmental groups, and companies, all of whom are working toward sustainable prosperity. And we've been working on climate change for some time. Our investor network, which, by the way, includes mainstream investors, and not just socially responsible investors, but major investors like CalPERS and CalSTRS and the City of New York, um, State of Connecticut, Investors are calling for uh, regulation of carbon. They're calling for complete disclosure of carbon footprints, wanting to make certain that companies are well aware of the risks as well as the opportunities of climate change in order to evaluate a company's long-term health. Uh, investors are being very clear about the need to really grapple with climate change at the executive level of companies. And also many of our companies, some of whom are mentioned in the Calpine amicus brief, are also calling for federal regulation for purposes of certainty. 
Well, in listening to the arguments of the justices, it seemed that many were really adverse to getting involved with uh, the matter and, and somewhat deriding uh, the use of uh, or regulation of carbon dioxide emissions. What were your thoughts about the justices' reaction to the arguments? Well, I, this is David. I, I really didn't have that reaction. I think the justices are wary, as they should be, of uh, the idea that um, we would be coming there to ask them to adjudicate the science, and that is not what we were there for. Um, the case is really a straightforward one of administrative law. Does the Clean Air Act cover these substances? Are they subject to regulation? And did the EPA give legally valid reasons for declining to use the authority if it has it? Now, the science issues tended to come up in standing because the government uh, is arguing that we haven't shown how global warming harms the states and harms the environmental uh, organizations' members and the cities, and we haven't shown how regulating the um, vehicle emissions would make a difference in the harm. We think we have. We think we've shown that global warming is underway already and that more carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases would only make it worse and that taking away the amount of emissions that you could uh, achieve by um, curbing uh, CO2 and other pollutants from new motor vehicles would lessen the future damage, and that's enough to establish standing. So they had to, um, the justices had to confront the science a little bit at least, and uh, it remains to be seen whether they want to dive deep into it or um, conclude that uh, since our factual affidavits were uncontested, um, standing has been established and uh, go on to the legal issues. What is the standing argument? I understand Massachusetts raised the argument that it's, that it's coastline. It's actually losing coastline due to global warming. All right, Massachusetts and all the eastern states which are involved in this case are losing coastline. California is losing snowpack, which is the natural water supply upon which the state depends. Same is true of Oregon and Washington. Uh, many other kinds of impacts we cited, those are the ones that... Uh, the argument tend to focus on that and the fact that higher heat will mean more smog is produced from conventional pollution, which makes the state's job of curbing uh, uh, conventional smog more difficult, another basis for their standing. And, and I, I think that those effects all qualify in the judge justice's mind. The question that... that um, a couple of them seemed to focus on was, well, when would this happen? And I think uh, Justice Scalia got a good answer from Mr. Milkey. It would happen. It is happening, and it will happen continuously and getting worse. And then the other thing they were focusing on, the government was asking uh, the court to conclude that we wouldn't make, we wouldn't get any relief from motor vehicle regulation alone. It would take action on all American emissions and action by other countries, and that, the government was arguing, would mean we need to depend on third parties, which is uh, often fatal to standing. Well, we argued that there's no such reliance on third parties, that what we're asking for here by way of uh, motor vehicles 
all by itself will make a tangible difference. And I think there's going to be at least five who find that that is a basis of standing. And do you think that uh, the one of the impediments to getting that kind of a decision is uh, the fact that carbon dioxide is not listed as a pollutant in the Clean Air Act? Well, no, that's what this is about. I mean, the Clean Air Act is very uh, clear in that it starts with a specific list of pollutants, and then it gives the EPA the authority and the responsibility to list additional pollutants when the dangers uh, from those pollutants become clearly known. And uh, that's what we're asking the agency to do with regard to carbon dioxide. Now, CO2 is actually listed as, and named as a pollutant in one provision of the law, and that was also uh, something that figured into the argument. One thing I thought, uh, the most dramatic thing I took away from the argument uh, was what I thought was a consensus and, and perhaps unanimous one on the court that Massachusetts, that the petitioners were right and EPA was wrong on the central legal issue about whether carbon dioxide is a pollutant that can be regulated under the Clean Air Act. By the end of the argument, Justice Scalia, who I think uh, the environmental community views as probably the, the, the least likely vote for the environmental community, was asking the government, well, can you point to any text that supports your position? And by the end of the argument, I don't even think the federal government's lawyer um, was was that confident of his own position there. He kept referring, well, the agency has said that without even taking it uh, as his own argument. So I think the court, if it gets to the issue of the central legal issue of this case, whether carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases are pollutants within the meaning of the Clean Air Act, they may well be unanimous. Um, as, as you guys have mentioned, the, the, there's a preliminary issue of standing, whether or not the, the court will even get there, which has often been referred to as uh, the last refuge of scoundrels. Um, you can't defend your position on the law and you say that uh, the case shouldn't even be brought. And I think that's, that's essentially what EPA is doing here, and hopefully we'll get a majority that, that finds standing. I thought some of Justice Kennedy's questions on that were very um, hopeful. Well, we're hearing once again that Justice Kennedy may be the swing vote, and he didn't, he, he was, he didn't have a lot to say uh, in the argument in this case. Uh, is that how you see it? Is it likely to come down to, to him as the swing vote in this case? I think um, on the standing issue, again, on the, the, on the core issue, yeah. statutory issue, it could be unanimous. Right. On the standing issue, I think um, that's the that's the the best reading of the tea leaves. Um, I think it could be six three at the end of the day. If, uh, um, uh, but but I think I think that's right. I think Justice Kennedy is likely to be the swing vote there, and he didn't say much, but he said a couple things. Uh, that I thought were were very helpful. In, in one passage, he asked whether whether uh, you, you could show less on standing if the risk of harm was truly enormous, which obviously it is in this case. And so he asked the the government, couldn't you just show, couldn't it isn't the burden to show actual uh, redress a little less here because the 
threat is so great. I thought that was a that was an interesting way of looking at it. He also was was asking um, the state of Massachusetts if states had some special standing, and he actually provided a case um, a Tennessee case called uh, Tennessee Copper from 1907, which actually supports that proposition. So obviously he didn't he wasn't committal. Um, uh, but I, I was I left that argument feeling um, more confident going out than going in. Well, I, I've read some commentary that that says that this case could go down in in Supreme Court jurisprudence, uh, you know, ranking with Brown versus Board of Education and Roe versus Wade in significance. Uh, and uh, how do you see this case? What's what's the potential implication uh, of this case? Well, I certainly agree with you know Doug and uh, Dave's analysis so far. Um, and I think it is significant. I, I think it's uh, a clear case of statutory interpretation, and it's important to remember it's, it's less about climate, as they've said, and more about uh, administrative law. It isn't really a question of whether we'll have carbon regulation at the federal level at this point. It's just a question of when. It will be enormously helpful if the states win on this case to expedite things forward. But I do want to say that, I mean, this is going to happen, and it's going to happen uh, through a variety of means, there's definitely a call for federal regulation from some major industry, from electric power uh, coming forward. Folks identified in the Calpine brief, you know, major entities like Duke Energy, General Electric, PG&E, Entergy, they're calling for mandatory economy-wide comprehensive federal regulation, much preferable to a patchwork of regulation from various states that would result if we, if we didn't have a federal standard. Well, we have, uh, you know, there's a, obviously the, the three of you are, are uh, kind of leaning towards the same side on this case, uh, but the, the argument's been made that, that even if you regulate these emissions, the, the overall impact on, on global warming will be minimal. Uh, what's, what's the response to that? Well, I think that um, it comes first from the Clean Air Act. The Clean Air Act realized, uh, recognizes that and authorizes the administrator to act when pollution causes or contributes to a problem. And the contribution language is reflecting the fact that it's very common with air pollution problems that they have multiple sources, and if you really want to lick a problem, you have to regulate more than one kind of source. That's certainly true for the smog-forming pollutants, and it will be true as well or global warming pollution. Well, wasn't that Chief Justice Roberts' point? I mean, it's not only dependent on what we do, it's dependent also on what China does and what other developing countries do. And well, it's true it, that a total solution is dependent on what other countries do. But the standing question is not about a total solution. It's about whether you get some benefit, some redress from the unilateral action. And uh, Justice Breyer was quite clear in in, uh, in enunciating that view, that pieces that the problem can be dealt with piece by piece, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's the statutory design. And that's really how we've solved all of our air pollution problems up to now. I mean, that is, as, as Dave said, that's the structure of the Clean Air Act. And he that's gave Justice, Justice Breyer, Breyer did a marvelous job with that. Excuse me. Sorry, Justice Breyer gave the the interesting example of child pornography. He challenged yeah. the government uh, lawyer to explain how they would use this argument if this were about child porn. They would not be arguing that um, a, 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 the 
prosecution of of uh, one um, part, you know, to close down one part of the industry would be ineffective because the rest of the industry is still out there. No, you deal with problems like this uh, as a whole when you can and by pieces when you can't. And the approach here is by pieces. Well, yes, although we also pointed out that what the government has done in the last couple of years is to put the two largest pieces off limits. Uh, vehicles are 20% of the problem, just passenger vehicles. And power plants, which the EPA has also refused to regulate on the same basis, no authority, are, account for 40% of the American CO2. And together they uh, account for 15% of the world's CO2. And uh, by any measure, this is a significant chunk of the problem and should get us by standing. Well, it's time for us at this point to take a short break. We will follow up in a few moments with final thoughts and contact information from our guests. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Coast to Coast is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Coast to Coast. This is Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. We'd like to welcome back our guest, David Doniger, Policy Director for the National Natural Resources Defense Council, Doug Kendall, Founder and Executive Director of Community Rights Council, and Ian Kelly, Director of Governance Programs for Ceres. Well, there are some 12 states that have joined in this lawsuit so far, which leave a significant number that have not. Do you think that, uh, is there a reason that the other states haven't latched into this and uh, supported it, or 
is it something that you've, you're looking at the leading states as, a, as the guidepost for this? Well, there is a group of, uh, of 12-plus states, plus or minus uh, two or three, depending upon the case we're talking about, that are working together to move the ball forward on global warming. And they tend to be uh, from very populous states, so I would think that getting close to half of the population of the states, of the United States, represented by the East states. Their um, governors uh, of, of these states, their executive branches are uh, the leaders uh, in, at the state level, Governor Schwarzenegger, Governor Pataki, um, uh, and people at both parties. Um, and then uh, the attorneys general from those states are very vigorous in this work in cooperation with uh, environmental organizations and with cities. It's a very good uh, working relationship. Doug Kendall, your uh, organization filed an amicus brief in this case. Uh, how did how was the uh, position taken in, in your brief? What were the issues you addressed in your brief as opposed to those taken up by the AGs in this case? Well, we, we addressed uh, three specific issues. Again, our brief was on behalf of uh, the local government associations and, and um, local government officials, and they um, are united. There's not, there was not another brief uh, filed on the other side. They've, they've only filed in favor of the federal, uh, in favor of Massachusetts in this case, in favor of federal action. And our brief says makes essentially three points. One is. Um, a federalism point about why, uh, while the state and local governments have been leading this nation, they need the federal government to uh, to exercise its leadership responsibility in addressing what is clearly a national and global problem. And so, uh, we explain to the court why the the states and local governments can't do it alone and need feather, federal federal um, uh, federal response here. Second, we uh, explain the specific burdens that are imposed upon local officials by global warming. Global uh, Local officials are really the first responders to the harms caused by global warming, and, and you know, it's part of their uh, local officials' daily existence that they have to deal with these increased heat waves, these increased flooding, increased uh, storm surges, et cetera. And so we... we talk specifically about the havoc that um, global warming is already causing at the local level. And then finally, we, we talk about why um, the cities involved in this case, and there's three major uh, uh, U.S. cities, the uh, city of New York, New York City, Baltimore, uh, and Washington, D.C., specifically what their uh, impacts are from global warming, why they have standing in this case, regardless of whether the states or, or the environmental groups have standing. So we make the we make the standing point, and I don't think any of those points are made in any of the, the other briefs. And, and one thing I'd mention is that we do have up on our website at communityrights.org uh, a complete collection of the briefs filed in this case in PDF format. So not just our brief, but every brief on both sides um, that's up in our site on uh, in, in a pretty easily readable form. So that might be something that interests your readers or your yeah. listeners. 
Anne, let's turn to you for a moment and ask how investors are putting economic pressure on businesses to cut uh, CO2 emissions. Well, I would say that, you know, no longer can one make the argument that uh, carbon regulation is going to inhibit the economy. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. It's very clear to investors, and we have statements now from financial institutions like Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan, that climate change represents a tremendous, in part, economic opportunity to really grow a renewable energy infrastructure and to remain competitive. And companies that don't take, that don't understand climate change as affecting long-term assets will not remain competitive in the long term. Uh, that investors are calling for, you know, boards of directors to really be stewards of financial assets and to have, to have companies look very carefully to assess uh, their carbon footprint, to disclose their emissions inventory, and to really work to figure out how they are going to manage in a carbon-constrained world. Also, to really see climate as a lens to other issues of sustainability, because all the issues we've been regulating all of these years are only going to be exacerbated by climate change, you know, water scarcity, for example. If a company, let's say a beverage company, is very dependent upon water, they need to look carefully at the way in which they're going to be managing in a carbon-constrained world and how climate change is going to affect water supplies. That's just one example. So investors are calling for full-spectrum reporting, very specifically for uh, climate risk disclosure, and they're doing so in big numbers, and we're really starting to see some results. We're just about out of time. I want to give you each an opportunity to offer some final thoughts. Uh, and I wonder if we could start, David, with you, and if you could give us some, some final thoughts on, on what we might see coming out of this case and also where our listeners can find out more about your work at the Natural Resources Defense Council. When we began this case five years ago, there was no heartbeat uh, in the Congress on global warming. And uh, a lot has changed because the public has uh, become real concerned about global warming and it's manifesting itself all the way through uh, the, uh, to, to Washington now. So with the election, uh, I've been saying the little ice age in global warming policy in Washington is coming to an end. Uh, we'll be working, regardless how this case comes out, for passing comprehensive new legislation. And uh, you can follow our work and help us at www.nrdc.org. Thanks. Doug Candle? Yeah, the last thought? thing I just wanted to say is that six months ago, I don't think uh, anybody or very few people thought the Supreme Court would even take the Massachusetts or CPA case. It was decided there's no split of authority at the lower courts on the specific issue here. And I think the overwhelming conventional wisdom was that the EPA would, or that the Supreme Court would simply let this case stand. By taking the case, the, the court and has already recognized the enormous importance of this issue. And I think the, the debate over the cases has shown a direct national spotlight on this issue. I think at the end of the day, the court is going to recognize um, what, what the environmental community, what the local governments and states have been saying for the last five years, which is that EPA is fundamentally misreading the Clean Air Act in this area and is shirking what is one of the most important federal responsibilities, uh, and that is to address a national problem and global problem like, like climate change. And, Doug, as you said, you're at www.communityrights.org. Is that right? 
That's correct. That's correct. And Kelly, you get the final word. Yes. Well, when I heard Jim Milkey speak a couple of weeks ago at an informal event, he said to the group, there's a way in which he feels that he had already won. Um, and I, I think that's absolutely true. I applaud the petitioners for bringing this case forward. Um, there's a way in which just getting the national spotlight on this question is already a major victory, no matter what happens from here. So uh, to all those who worked on the briefs and worked on the case, uh, our sincere congratulations. And if people are interested in, in just looking at how financial institutions and investors and the marketplace is looking at climate change, I would invite them to go to www.series.org, and we'd uh, love to hear from you. Thanks. Well, thank you very much to all of our guests. We really appreciate your time and uh, your thoughts on this topic. Thank you. Well, we're happy to be here. And, Craig, I'll, we'll talk next week. Yes, Bob, we will, and uh, let's hope it doesn't get any warmer. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.